0: Our goal this morning is to revisit Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Now, it's been a couple of weeks. Uh, In my absence, Pastor Daniel did a fabulous job working his way through uh, the book of James. But now that I'm back, we're going to go back to the book of Ephesians and continue our book study through this marvelous portion of Scripture. Now, if you were with us uh, the last, again, a couple of weeks ago when we started this process of our study of the book, we examined the first couple of verses Uh, The address, where Paul introduces himself, addresses his audience, etc. But then he launches into what we call the adoration. It is a marvelous hymn. That is, uh, it spans from verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1 all the way to verse uh, 14. And this hymn is, is a marvelous portion of Scripture. In fact, uh, it is sometimes labeled a magnum opus or the greatest work, the greatest piece uh, of Trinitarian literature anywhere in the New Testament. The purpose of the adoration, however, is Paul is using it, he's employing it for the purpose of not merely informing his audience, though of course it does that, right? He's not only informing his audience, but he's also seeking to inspire his audience to greater love and loyalty to God for his, that is God's, work of redemption. So if you recall briefly with me, the structure of this hymn is rather elaborate and it's significant. It's structured in two primary ways, both theologically as well as chronologically. Theologically, this hymn consists of three stanzas which are arranged around the three members of the triune Godhead. So we have the first uh, stanza, which we began our examination of last time, and we will, uh, Lord willing, conclude here this morning. But the first stanza is all about singing to God the Father. And then the second is uh, to God the Son. The third, God the Spirit. But these three stanzas are not only arranged theologically, but also chronologically around the stages of redemption. So here's kind of the thought flow slash outline that we have used as we've employed as we work our way through this hymn. Verses three to six is all about the plan of the Father before the world began. The plan of the Father before the world began. Then we'll see, starting Lord willing next time, uh, we'll see from verse seven and following, the redemption of the Son that has obviously present aspects going on right now. But then lastly, we'll see in verses 13 and 14, we'll see the inheritance of the spirit that is yet to come, the idea of eternity, and that which is yet to come is the primary role of the spirit and the subject of the third stanza in verse 13 and 14. And so if you're with us, again, a couple of weeks ago when we started our examination at first stanza, verses three through six, the plan of the Father, the hymn to God the Father, we subdivide it into two big parts. The first part is what we covered last time. The second part is what we want to cover here this morning. We first looked at the reality that Paul opens this hymn with the phrase, blessed be God. Recall that that word is actually the adjective form of the word eulogy. And so we use the term eulogizable. God is eulogizable. We can speak well of him. God is infinitely great. And good, and we can never run out of things to say about the goodness and greatness of God. And that is, of course, what Paul is drawing our attention to, not only with this first stanza, but through the entirety of the hymn. But what we're then going to look at this morning is not only does Paul announce God as blessed, blessed, eulogizable, but he then delineates why God is blessed, namely because he blesses us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. So last time, if you were with us, we looked primarily at verse 3 and verse 6, and we talked about this concept of praising God, adoring God. We looked at the concept of how all things in history, creation redemption, is all to bring praise and honor and glory uh, to the Lord, uh, the, you know, the Lord of creation. And so that was verses 3 and 6. But today we're going to focus on kind of the center of the stanza, verses 4, 5, as well as a phrase in verse 6 that delineate the blessings from God. Here are the three blessings from God that Paul highlights in this stanza and that we will uh, elaborate upon in the next few minutes. Paul says the blessings we have received from God the Father are, number one, election. Election, that's verse four. Number two, adoption. Adoption, that's verse five. And then number three, in verse six, you might call reception. He has made us accepted in the beloved. All right, so election, adoption, reception. These three ideas, of course, are interrelated. Uh, The center idea, you could say, is, is adoption, because adoption involves both election and reception, that these are all unpacking that central idea that God has elected us, adopted us into his family, which is what he has done to receive us, to make us accepted in the Beloved. All right, so we have a fun passage ahead of us. Now, if you've got your Bible, let's read it together, and then we'll look at these three blessings that we have received from God the Father. All right, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to verse 6 says this Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy. And without blame before him in love, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Wherein, notice, this is the third uh, primary blessing, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. So there's the idea of reception election, adoption, reception. Verse 4, 5, and 6. All right. Now, as we as we look at these, we are going to examine first and foremost election, verse four. So again, this idea of election, or if we were to define it, the word itself in Greek is rather simple. It means to be singled out, marked out, or specifically chosen by God. All right. That's the concept of election. Now, uh, I think I got control back there, Miss Joe. Thank you. My program still being funky on me, but thank you so much. All right, so the election of God, the idea that God has elected or chosen or singled out, marked out, uh, you and I as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, is the con- that's the definition behind election. Now, this is, of course, a very important and fascinating subject. It is often very controversial, and my goal this morning is not to be controversial, but it's to try and be as clear as possible regarding the purpose and the function of this important subject in the scripture, the idea of election. Now, I have, I'm just this morning gonna give you the high spots of this. I have given an, a, an, an entire lecture to this idea in the past, which uh, I can get to you or it's up on our website. You can find it if it's of interest to you where I spend more time on it, an entire hour just on this subject. And we go deeper, we look up more passages, et cetera. But this morning, my goal is to help you understand, not, I mean, first, just the big ideas of what election is but then how it is supposed to function, this theological concept, how it's supposed to function in the life of the believer. So again, election means to be singled out, marked out, specifically chosen by God. But the basis of election, according to scripture, is the concept of foreknowledge. Now, for sake of time, we're not gonna go to these three passages, but I do encourage you to write them down and go read them. But if you were to go to Romans 8, verse 29, Ephesians 1, 4, which is our passage this morning, as well as 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, then you would quickly conclude, you would see, you would observe that there's, a, there's, a, there's three big words that interrelate with this subject of election. The three big words are foreknowledge, predestination, and election. Two of those appear in our text. But if you were to look at these three passages, you would discover that there's a very distinct logical order of these three ideas. That first and foremost, we have the idea of foreknowledge that is then followed by predestination and then by election. In other words, God has chosen us because he predestined us, and he predestined us because he foreknew us. So the, the crux of this quote-unquote controversial issue is the idea of foreknowledge. That's really the heart of the argument. So let me define that for you just briefly. For knowledge, that actual Greek word appears five times in the New Testament as a verb and two times as a noun. Those are your primary passages where it surfaces. Acts 2.23, Acts 26.5, Romans 8.29, Romans 11.2, 1 Peter 1.2, and verse 20 of the same chapter, and 2 Peter 3 and verse 17. Now, stick with me because I I trust this will be helpful for you as, as I try to summarize a rather large subject, but try and get to the practical core of it. So again, foreknowledge appears five times in the New Testament as a verb, twice as a noun. And here's the gist. It can mean, that one Greek word can mean one of two things. And this is the controversy. It can mean knowing something beforehand. This is obvious in passages such as Acts 26, verse 5, 2 Peter 3, and verse 17. It means to know about something before it happens. Foreknowledge, to know before. The other way that this word is sometimes translated Is to not simply know something beforehand, but determine or decide something beforehand. Depending upon your English translation, is often translated with that idea of to predetermine or foreordain. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse 20. So the point is, and this is why there's so much debate, is that both translations of this word are possible, and therefore both positions have texts to stand on, right? That's the whole idea. Now candidly, if you look at the evidence, this is just my, you know, flushing out of my position. But though this word can be translated both ways, if you look at its usage, both in the New Testament and outside the New Testament, Josephus and classical Greek, it is overwhelmingly used to mean know something beforehand, to know something beforehand. In other words, God elected us because he predestined us because he foreknew us. Well, what did God foreknow? So in summary, this is, let, me, let me try and wrap this up for you. Here's my position on this somewhat controversial subject, but I want to try and get you to see the core of the matter and how it's practical and important for us and why it is one of the chief blessings that we have from God the Father. But this, contra- this, this uh, subject is so controversial because it seems to bring at odds the two ideas of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. you familiar with this? Uh, Some of you may be familiar with the subject, some not. But the crux of the matter is who chose who. Did I choose God or did God choose me? Is it sovereign that God chose me and I had nothing to do with it? Or is there a responsibility that I have uh, and a part, a role that I have to play where I choose God? And both of those are biblical concepts. So here is, in my mind, the best way to harmonize it for what it's worth Here's the reality. Before creation of the world, which is what our text says, that we are elect before the foundations of the world. Before God laid down the foundations in Genesis chapter 1. Before the creation of the world, God foreknew which free agents would trust in him. In other words, looking down, as scholars sometimes say, looking down the corridors of time, God can see what you would do before you did it. Biblical evidence is very clear on this. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, for instance, that God knows what you're going to pray for before you ask him. The reality is God has complete and total knowledge of all things and all possibilities before they happen. And I think that's the fundamental meaning of the word foreknowledge. He knows beforehand everything that we as free agents would do, because I also believe in that biblical concept that we as human beings are made in the image of God and part and parcel with being in the image of God is the idea of free agency. The concept is that we have the power given to us by God to make decisions, personal decisions. However, God knows what you are going to choose before you choose it. But then here's the crux of the matter. Knowing what you would do before you did it, God then sovereignly chose to create us anyways. In other words... As one scholar puts it, just ponder all the possible universes that God could have created. Think about it. This is a very helpful thought exercise. Stand back and just ponder for a moment all the possible universes that God could have created, the various possibilities of who would inhabit those universes, how the flow of history would go, etc. And yet, as God ponders creation, Before he creates, because that's what our text says, he decides to create this particular universe. He decides to create you and I. He decides to create history and the redemptive process of the historic, you know, the history of redemption. He decides to choose, and he chooses to create this universe. So the reality is both of these are at work do you see the sovereign hand of god he didn't have to create this universe he didn't have to create you and i he didn't have to create us but he did and he sovereignly chose to do that we did not influence his choice but on the other hand when he's looking down through the corridors of time and he's and he's creating his choosing to create free agents he knows what you will choose before you choose it so we see both ideas are you with me of the sovereignty of God that he chooses to create us, knowing full well that we would disappoint him, rebel against him, we would hate him. Romans says that we were at enmity against God, which is ridiculous when you think about it, right? It's like my nine-year-old saying, hey, I'm gonna take off, you know, take on the defensive line of, you know, the Green Bay Packers or whatever, right? Without pads, right? I'm just like, I'm just gonna take him on. I can do this. That's insanity, right? But that's what we do before God is we say, God's the creator. But I don't care. I can do what I want. I'm gonna be rebellious against him. I'm going to, again, as Roman says, be an enmity. Be his enemy. Choose to be the enemy of the creator. That's ridiculous. But nonetheless, we do it in our rebellion, our depravity. We choose sin. And God, He knew that we would do that before we did it. And yet he decided to create us anyways, knowing that he would bring his son into the world, that through the sacrifice of his son and the work of his spirit, he would bring us to a place of humility and faith in that person and work of Jesus Christ. And he knew all of this before it happened. And when you start thinking about it, you step back and you ponder the tapestry of history and all the different decisions of how it could have gone otherwise. If I had married someone else other than my wife and had then my children wouldn't be here today. That would be true of your parents. You wouldn't be here today. Right? Etc. You think about all the decisions of free agents that go into the playing out of human history. God saw every single one before it happened. And he chose to create this world in which we live, knowing that it would rebel against him. But he had a purpose, to send his son and bring back we sheep who have gone astray, Isaiah puts it. And he's bringing us back to shepherd and bishop of our souls, as Peter puts it. So this concept of the election of God is a very important concept, which has a purpose. Go back to the text, and it says, according as he has chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. In other words, notice that there is a purpose to God's election. God elected to create this world, knowing that some would reject him and some would accept him. And yet those whom accept Christ, those whom he decides to create, knowing they will trust in him, This has a purpose behind it. The concept of election can prompt deep thought in many ways, but it is meant to also provide awe, identity, and security in the believer. That we as believers in Christ ought to look at the concept of election, that God loves me regardless of the fact that he knows every single sin that I did commit, am committing, and will commit. And he loves me anyways he chose to send his son anyways. That concept of God's absolute foreknowledge and yet his love in spite of knowing all of my weaknesses is to bring about within me not only awe of the fact that God can know that, that God has complete and total knowledge, but that he chose to love me anyways. And this is what provides for us the basis of our identity and security. We'll come back to these concepts in just a few moments. But notice the goal of what God is doing. At the end of verse four, it says that he has chose us that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. In other words, God did not elect us aimlessly. He did not choose to create us aimlessly. Rather, God has a very specific goal in mind. He does not want to leave us in our sinful state, but wants to make us holy and blameless. And these two words are, of course, they're synonyms, but they're, it's referencing the positive and negative aspects of our walk with God. The idea of holy is the positive, that God wants us to be holy, separate, set apart to him from sin. But then blameless is, of course, the word that means it's the negative aspect of that, that he wants us to be without blame, without spot, as you will say later in Ephesians chapter five, to make us without spot or wrinkle before the presence of his glory. Now, that concept is what God wants to do in our life. So God wants to transform us to be holy, which is like father, like son. In other words, holiness is a defining characteristic of God. And just like the father, he wants his children to look like him, to be holy like him, to be blameless, To means again, to be clean without spot or fault. And God wants to take sinful human beings, those free agents who have decided to reject and rebel against God, those who have decided, which is true of all of us, right? We have decided to make God our enemy. God's desire is to take sinners and transform them to be holy and blameless. But it says to be holy and blameless before him in love. Now that particular Greek phrase, before him, is pr- pretty emphatic. It means before his face, face to face. The idea is that the end goal of God is that we who once were sinners can stand lovingly and openly before the all-seeing, all-knowing judge of the universe, yet be unashamed. He wants to take us who sin in secret, who sin in open, those of us who go on in our rebellion against him, who are not acceptable in his presence because of our sin, he wants to take these people Transform them through the process of redemption, which is what this hymn is all about. He wants to transform us so that we can stand before Him with total acceptance in love. Meaning, that in love idea is not, it, it can be taken one of two ways and probably both because both of these are biblical concepts. But what does it mean to stand before God in love? It means that either we ought to be totally sub, voluntarily submissive to his will and motivated to do so by love. In other words, I stand before God loving him the way I was designed to love him. Because how, again, how does Romans describe us before salvation? We were at enmity. Enmity is that hatred, that attitude of an enemy before God. He wants to take that and he wants to remove it where I don't have any animosity towards God. I don't have any desire for autonomy from God but I love him and I stand before him completely loving him but also the reverse is true. That he chose to save us based upon his love. In other words, it's a restoration, a perfect restoration of the relationship. It's not a one-sided love where he loves us but we hate him or vice versa Where we love him, but he rejects us. No. To stand before him in love with holiness and blamelessness is the ideal picture of what God intended at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. That God made us to have fellowship with himself. And God has laid out this perfect plan long before you ever existed, knowing full well what you would do and not do, etc. God lays it out, He creates. He allows history to go on. He, he governs it. He leads it where he wants it to go. And his whole goal is to bring us openly, again, as I said before on the previous slide, he wants us to be lovingly and openly before him, where I can stand unashamed before him, holy and blameless. But he's the all-seeing, all-knowing judge. He knows every single sin you've ever committed, whether it's in deed, in word, or in thought. Right? This is a horrifying Thought, But what if you walked around with a TV monitor on your forehead? You ever heard this? And the rest of the world could see what was going through your head? Would you want that to happen? No, that's a horrifying thought, isn't it? That's like a horror idea. No way. Why? Because we know what goes on on the inside. Is that hidden from God? No, he knows. He knows better than you do the motivations of your heart, the motivations of your actions, why you do what you do, not just what you do, but why do you do it? God knows it all. And yet he will one day stand us up before his presence, his face, his all-seeing eye, his all-knowing knowledge of who we are and what we've done, and we will be declared holy and blameless before him in love. I will love him, and he will love me, Perfectly, We will have absolute restoration. So back to the love idea. Both of these ideas are true. And they give us a beautiful picture of a God that is far from being cold or austere, aloof, uncaring. But rather, it gives us a picture of one who warmly desires a loving relationship with undeserving sinners. What a God that would choose to create us knowing what we would do in rejecting him. And he does all of this before the foundations of the world. So our first blessing, as Paul summarizes it here in verse four, is that we have been chosen by God. The first blessing is election, that God created us, that he knows what we would do before we did it, but then his intention is to bring us into his presence where we are holy and without blame before him in love. Verse five, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children. Now the word predestinated just simply means to predetermine your destiny, right? Pretty simple, it's not a complicated word. Predetermined or predestinated is the idea is that he has predetermined your destiny. He has chosen what you would become holy and blameless without you know, before him in love. And to be, second blessing, adopted into his family. Let's consider this second blessing here together for just a few moments. First, election. Second, adoption. Adoption, for those of you who are unaware, the Greek word itself literally means to be placed as sons or son placement. The idea, obviously, familiar with, in our culture, we're familiar with this concept, that God has adopted us and made us part of his very own family. That's what adoption means. Relationally, this implies that we are the sons of God himself. We stand in an intimate relationship to the creator of the entire universe, not just any relationship, but a family relationship. We're not just his servants, but he has made us more than that. He has made us his sons. This special relational status is what the uh, the idea, the concept of adoption is getting at. But not only have we been adopted, and that's so therefore relationally it means we're part of the family, but legally speaking, we're not only standing in familial relationship to the creator and the judge of all things, but We are also the rightful and total heirs to all that he has. Think about that for a second. There's a legal aspect to adoption. There's a relational aspect and a legal aspect. Relationally, I am brought as an, again, the word uh, alien is used in Ephesians chapter 2. We'll get to it. But the idea is you are apart from the, the, the family of God. You are distant from, you are outside of the family of God in our Natural, sinful state. But God has brought us into this familial relationship. He has given us a place, an environment of warmth and love relationship of a father who cares. But that comes with some incredible privileges. That we are given an inheritance. Because we are part of the family, we are now given the legal right to be heirs of God to receive what he'll, and he'll elaborate on this throughout the book of Ephesians. We're introduced to it with the concept of adoption, but he's going to give us a lot more information on this. What does our eternal inheritance entail? Many things. As, again, Paul said earlier in verse three, all spiritual blessings in heavenly places are given to us in Christ. Every possible conceivable blessing that God could invent is ours in Christ. We are heirs the king of the universe. Now, for those of you who are not aware, Paul, when he says this, had a very tangible illustration of it in Roman society. Roman society, for instance, would often use adoption to signify an heir. Many slaves were actually adopted to become full-fledged family members and heirs to the estate. This happened multiple times throughout Roman history. In fact, to take this illustration a step further, many of the emperors including the so-called five good emperors. Have you ever studied Roman history? The so-called five good emperors are some of my favorite. You got Hadrian, Trajan, etc. ends with Marcus Aurelius. But these five good emperors, guess what? None of them were blood-related to each other. Did you know that? In fact, many of the Roman emperors were not blood-related to the next emperor. Rather, what they would do is that they would choose their successor. They would adopt said successor into the family. So that that successor would ultimately become heir to the estate. They would become the next emperor. And when you think about, so, and some of these emperors, like the five good emperors, I, again, get lost in this. I'm, I'm going to, you know, not belabor the point. But you study some of them, like the Spaniard who comes to the throne. He's not even Roman. He, he has no blood ties to Rome. He was a conquered person. Right in, 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 the, uh, in the conquest. And yet, nonetheless, he joins the Roman army, rises up the ranks, catches the, the eye of the emperor, and the emperor says, that's the one. I want him. He's adopted into the family. And he becomes the next emperor, sitting on the throne of the Roman Empire. And when this takes place, the, this legal transaction of adoption would take place. The adopted son would take the name the identity, and eventually the estate of the adopter. Typically, this would be signified by being given a seal or a signet ring that would signify this status. You ever seen that old movie Ben-Hur? All right, Charlton Heston, Moses, right? Are you with me? You have no earthly idea what I'm talking about? The Ten Commandments movie, Charlton Heston? Come on, keep up. Get cultured for crying out loud. But the point is, Charles Neston also did a movie, Ben-Hur, and wherein, right, he's actually Judean. He's a Hebrew. And his best friend is, is it Marsala? Or, yeah, I think that's his name. Marsala is a Roman. And then they, they become rivals, and it's kind of a fun story. But there's an adoption scene in that movie where Ben-Hur, who's a Jew, and he was not only a Jew, but he, he became a slave on a galley ship and by the way, it's it's, it's you know a fictional uh, film, but it's it's based in the Greco-Roman society of which you know it, it's portrayed. and it was portraying a story that was real to life. In other words, the events, the surrounding, the setting is all real to life in Rome. But he was a Jew, he was a Jew, Ben Hur, remember this? And he gets enslaved, and he becomes a rower, right in the underdeck of a Roman galley. He's involved in a battle. The ship goes down. All the slaves were chained to the oars, but he is released, right? He gets, he, he, he gets out of the chains, and what does he do? Not only does he survive the shipwreck, he saves the captain of the ship. He's a Roman. He's the guy who had enslaved Ben-Hur, but he saves him. So when they're picked up by, you know, another Roman galley later, then this captain, later in the movie, adopts Ben-Hur. He's Jew, but now he's given the signet ring of this Roman, high society Roman. And Ben-Hur now has all the rights and privileges of that Roman family. That picture is exactly what the Bible is describing. That's, it was a Roman legal idea that Paul is using. He's harnessing as a picture for what it looks like in our relationship with God. But you tell me, according to the book of Ephesians and elsewhere in the scripture, what is our seal, our signet ring, evidence, That we are part of the family of God. Do you know it? How well do you know the rest of even Ephesians chapter one? It tells you. What's our seal? We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, God, having foreknown and elected, that to be the case, seals us with his spirit. He gives us the Holy Spirit of promise of promise, and we'll get to it later because I'm stealing my thunder for later because that's verse 13 and 14, all right? That's the third stanza. We'll give it a whole, you know, examination of those verses on their own standing. But the point is, the spirit of promise is that not only did he promise that it would come, right? The Old Testament promises from Jeremiah, Ezekiel, etc., cetera, that the new covenant, the spirit of God would come, but it's also a promise of more coming. That once I have the Holy Spirit, just like was promised to me, it promises a greater inheritance coming. It's the seal, the signet, that I am part of the family of God and that there is an eternal inheritance that I have a right to. Because I earned it? Because I deserve it? No. But because God loves me and predetermined that that should be my destiny. That's a marvelous idea. But the text also goes on to say that this adoption, we've been predetermined, predestinated, To be adopted as God's children, it says, verse 5, by Jesus Christ. This is the means of our adoption. In other words, by or through, by means of Jesus Christ. But we have to ask the question, how was Jesus the means of our adoption? If I am a son to God the Father, what does Jesus have to do with it? How does God the Father adopt us through Jesus Christ? Well, again, there's two primary ways to take this, both of which are true, so you can choose between them, or both of them, I think, are communicating very important concepts. First, this idea of being adopted by means of Jesus Christ may reference the concept of our union with Christ. This is a really important theological concept. It's the in Christ idea. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. We're going to unpack this as we work our way through the book of Ephesians. Ephesians has a lot to say about this idea. But if this is referencing our union in Christ, then this is what it means. In other words, Christ is God's son and my union with Christ now makes me a son of the Father. I like to say that we ride on his coattails. That when I am united with Christ, the benefits and privileges that Christ has before the Father are now mine. I enjoy the relationship that the Father has with the Son because I am in Christ. So this might be referencing our union with Christ, that we have been adopted because of our union with Christ and Christ is God's son. The second option is that, again, going back to our Roman society adoption illustration that Paul seems to be harnessing here, just like adoption would at times require a price to be paid, then God paid that price. He made us sons through, by means of, What? What was the price that the father paid for us? It was the sacrifice of his one and only unique son. Consider the love that that takes. The awesome idea that God loves us enough that he is willing to sacrifice his one and only son. The one and only son voluntarily, willingly submits to this and says, yes, I want them as brethren Hebrews chapter two says we are brothers to Christ and sons of the heavenly father. That's an incredible concept. And so that, again, is the other way that we could take that phrase, both of these ideas being equally true, but that we have been adopted by means of Jesus Christ. Jesus' payment, the sacrifice of Christ, is the price that it took to bring us into the family of God. But then, of course, the result. It says, continuing in verse five, we've been predestined to children, uh, unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. To himself. The result of this adoption is that we are now gods. We stand before the Father of the Son, Jesus Christ, and we can we can call him our Father as well. Because I'm in Christ, because Christ paid the price Then we now have this new relationship with the Father, that we are been adopted by Jesus Christ unto himself. God the Father brought us to himself. This idea is, is well-pictured with that child that runs into the arms of a loving father. The idea is the, the father opening up his cloak, receiving the child, wrapping his arms around the child, receiving him, and that kind of brings us into our next concept. But as J.R. Packer puts it, This idea of adoption is pictured very beautifully, or beautifully pictures for us, this idea. Quote, the closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of this relationship. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater, end quote. In other words, our relationship to God. In the New Testament, I I, want to do a chronicle of this sometime, just a, a whole sermon series. I don't know, I'll get to it before I die, hopefully. But, all the pictures of the New Testament, the, 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 the word pictures that the New Testament uses to describe our relationship with God, you know, to God. We have, you know, uh, many, the servant, master, right? We have lots of different examples, but this one is referencing the family, that God is our father, not just our judge that has granted us freedom through the cross work of Christ, but he's our father, who has brought us into his very own family and given us right to be heirs of his estate, which is, again, what brings us to the third and final idea, verse six. Not only do we have election, verse four, adoption, verse five, but we have reception, verse six. Again, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the phrases at the end of verse five, beginning of verse six, that all of this is according to the good pleasure of his will and the praise of his, the glory of his grace. We already exposited those ideas. But our third blessing is given at the end of verse 6. It says wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. This idea of acceptance or reception in verse 6. Has the idea it's taking the, the, the adoption metaphor just to its next logical step, right? It's just an elaboration upon the do- adoption metas- metaphor. Like I said, the adoption metaphor is really the centerpiece of these blessings because it, it, adoption involves election, right? There's a choosing to be brought into the family of God, but then when we're brought into the family of God, that means reception, reception, being made accepted in the beloved. The idea is that God is granting to us. A warm welcome. He is showering us with elaborate favor. That we are brought into the countenance of a smiling face. That's the idea. In fact, this is this phrase is is all the more intense and emphatic in the Greek. The Greek phrase in this verse literally, literally reads: The grace that he has graced us with. It takes the noun and the verb form of the word grace and it piles them one right on top of the other. That God's grace, right? the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he has made us accepted. Or in Greek, the word made, made us accepted is literally the verb form of grace. That God has graced us with his grace. That's the idea. It's emphatic, it's, rep, it's repetitive. This redundancy is meant to all the more underline, to underscore, to put an exclamation point on the idea that this is entirely an act of God's grace which we've already commented, but we need to ponder that before we were saved as hopeless, lost sinners, we were not acceptable to God for any relationship with him or any favor or blessing from him. We had no rights before him or any means in and of ourselves of solving our sin problem. We're entirely alienated from him, helpless, without God and without hope in this world, as the way Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter two. We'll get there. But he paints a portrait, uh, a desperate portrait of, of, of this desperate condition that we are lost and hopeless and alien apart from God in our own sinful state. But, not, and, and even taking a step further, and I already made this point, but not only were we alienated from him, but to the contrary, we were enemies of his. I've quoted that several times, but for those of you who might be wondering Romans chapter five verses one to 11 is, is where Paul paints that picture that we are at enmity before him, that we need to be saved from his wrath because we have rebelled against him. We have invited God's righteous anger because of our sinful deeds. But nonetheless, we subject to his final judgment and condemnation we who could not approach God outside of Christ are now brought nigh. We are accepted. We are favored before God. Why? It says because of Christ. Jesus puts it this way in John chapter 14, and verse six. He says, what, can you quote it with me? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Right? That's John 14, 6. Peter puts it this way in Acts chapter 4 in verse 12. But there is one name under heaven, given among men, whereby he must be saved. There's one way to God. One way to be brought into the family of God. One way to be made acceptable before your creator. And it is not our deeds. It's not our church membership. It's not our, you know, keeping of some sacrament or code of conduct. Rather, the one and only way is through the cross work of Jesus Christ. That will be explicit in the next stanza as he talks about the work of the son in redemption, that we are saved and forgiven through his blood. There is no other way. But in the le- nonetheless, on the basis of the saving work of Christ, we have been brought nigh. We have been uh, accepted in the Beloved. Let's talk about that phrase for just a moment. What does it mean to be accepted in the Beloved? What does that mean? Well, again, you can take that one of two ways. Either it means among the saints, that we come as a group, that I trust in Christ, I am received before God, and if you, if that is true of you as well, then we are the beloved of God, and we are accepted among the beloved. In other words, we come as a congregation, if you will. It's not just me, but any. It's not just you, but any who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ can be saved, to be brought into the presence of God, made acceptable before their King and their Creator. Or, perhaps better, is to interpret the term in the beloved, or the beloved, as a reference to the person of his son, Jesus Christ. It's a reference to Jesus Christ himself. In other words, going back to this idea of our union with Christ, our union with Christ envelops us with the favor that Christ himself enjoys before God. That I have been made acceptable not because of my own deeds, not because of my church membership, what have you, but I am made acceptable before God because I'm in Christ. And Christ is acceptable before God. In other words, God sees, treats, and blesses us in the same way that he does his dear son. That's the King James translation of Colossians 1 and verse 13, his dear son. Some translations will translate that the son of his love, the son whom God loves, the son whom the father spoke and described in Matthew 3 and verse 17 at his baptism. He says, quote, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, end quote. If that is how God views Jesus, if I am in Jesus, I am one of his. I'm, I'm a follower of Christ, and Christ has brought me to the throne, in a sense, interceding on my behalf. He goes before the Father and says, Jeff South is one of mine. If that is the case, then however God the Father views God the Son, now he views me. So I've been made acceptable in the beloved, because of who Christ is and what he has done for us. Now, when you think about these marvelous blessings, election, adoption, reception, that the Father has bestowed upon us, here's the big implications. Give me just a few minutes to unpack these ideas, and then we'll we'll wrap it up. The primary implications are twofold. I want you to ponder this for just a few moments with me. The primary implications of these blessings that we have received from God the Father is number one, identity. Identity. And number two, security. What do I mean by identity and security? In other words, if these blessings are bestowed upon us, election, adoption, reception, if that is true, then it gives to me identity and security. By identity, I mean this. I know who I am. I'm a child of the king. I've been brought into the family of God, the creator of the universe, the redeemer of all things, the judge of the universe has brought me into his family. That's who I am. When you think of your identity, and I ask you, for instance, if you meet someone new and you're you're starting with small talk, you know how it is? You know how it goes, right? We all start with small talk and it always starts with, oh, hey, who are you? What's your name? Where do you work? Where'd you come from? What do you do? And we're trying to identify said individual. And, they, and we typically say, well, you know, my name's Jeff South. I'm pastor at Ruben Mountain Bible Church. I got a wife and six kids, right? My parents are over in Nephi, Utah. You know, that's how we identify ourselves. If I asked you, who is Michael Jordan? Sorry, you LeBron James fans, but I'm a Jordan fan, Okay. But who is Michael Jordan? What's probably the first thing you're going to say? Yeah, thank you. Who said it? The best basketball player of all time, okay? (laughs) Just saying. But the point is, that's how you identify him. But when we contemplate who we are, according to Paul, our identity is not to be found in where we come from as far as your human family your geography, your job, your hobbies, your accomplishments, your degrees, your trophies. That is not who you are. It's not who I am. Because all of those things ultimately are going to fade. They're going to go away. They all have an expiration date. But if I realize that my primary identity, as Paul is trying to help us see here, is that I'm a child of the king, that is eternal. It never goes away. That is always true. And that reality is what gives me my identity. I know who I am. But not only do I know who I am, I know what I'm supposed to do. Because he tells us that you are elect to be holy and blameless before him in love. If you are a child of the king, how are children of the king supposed to act? Well, like kings do, I like that. <laughs> right? How are we supposed to act? We're supposed to act like father, like son, right? If, if we are the children of the king of kings, we're supposed to act like the king. Jesus put it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. If your father in heaven is perfect, he says, so you be perfect. In other words, when you start asking the question, how am I supposed to respond in said, information, you know, said situation, said relationship, said circumstance? Well, you go back. Well, what, what does God say? What would Jesus do? Right? The old WWJD bracelets that we all used to wear in the 90s or whenever that was. right? That's the concept. Is like we, can, we know what I'm supposed to do. I know my purpose. I know my, my destiny is to be before him in love. That's where I'm heading. But in the meantime, I'm supposed to reflect him. I'm supposed to live in a way that honors and glorifies him. Now, we've said this before in our previous introductions, and we're getting to it. But in chapters four through six of the book of Ephesians, he gets very specific on what that looks like in all of your given relationships. In your personal life, what does it look like? He says you need to live pure with purity in your personal life. What about in your married life? Romans or uh, Ephesians five is going to address that. What about your corporate church life? Don't worry, Ephesians talks about it. What about you're in your home as a child or a parent? Don't worry, Ephesians talks about it. How about the workplace? As my place brought, got up here earlier and prayed, Lord, protect us as we go about you know, our, our work uh, this next week. We go to the workplace. How are you supposed to operate in the workplace? Ephesians chapter six, it'll cover it, right? The whole idea is that I know who I am and what I'm supposed to do. That's the idea of identity. But let's take it a step further. Not only do we have identity, we have security. We have security, You might have experienced this before, maybe with a uh, child or grandchild or a dog. (laughs) You ever had your dog in trouble, right? Where you yell at the dog. And what happens? They crawl with like, you know, eyes down. Children do the same thing, by the way. (laughs) And they come, right? And they won't look you in the face. Why is that? Why is that? Well, because number one, maybe they're ashamed. But number two, they're afraid. They're afraid that you're going to reject them. That they've, they've messed up one too many times. What do we call that? We call it insecurity. They're afraid. They're not secure in the relationship. They still have a, a, a view of a performance-based relationship. All of us struggle with this, but that's how we view ourselves before God. That I'm just, I've, I've sinned one too many times. That I'm afraid that God is going to reject me. That, you know, it's just one too many sins. God won't forgive the next one. And we come or don't come. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, right? We're talking about this in men's group on Wednesday. Adam and Eve in the garden, how do they respond After they sin and God shows up, what do they do? They hide amongst the trees of the forest. right? They put aprons upon, made of fig leaves. They hide themselves because they are afraid of God's gaze. They don't want God to see them in their sin. They're afraid of rejection. But what does this text inform us as to God's Attitude towards us. First, I was chosen before creation. We already made this point, but God knows not only all your past sin, present sin, but future sin. Everything that you have done or will do to bring the displeasure of God, He has absolute perfect foreknowledge about that. Did that stop Him from sending His Son? No, it did not. He sent his son, anyways, which is the second idea. Not only was I chosen before creation, but I was paid for by the sacrifice of Christ. What is the most infinitely valuable commodity in the entire universe? I know we're a bunch of gold miners, but I hate to disappoint you. Gold is not the primary commodity of the universe, there is something more valuable. Something more rare. Something greater. What is it? What have we been redeemed with, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18? Not with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but we've been purchased by the precious blood of Christ. There is only one eternal, divine, perfect, sinless, spotless human being on the face of the earth. His blood, his life, is the most precious, rare, valuable commodity in existence. And yet that is what was given as the price for our redemption, our adoption. The Father was willing to pay it. Think about that for a second. Let that sink in. That ought provide for you some security that God means what He says when he describes how much he loves us. But take it one step further, and we'll get into this in a couple of weeks, when we, you know, a few weeks when we get there. We talk about that final stanza, verse 13 and 14. But not only was I chosen before creation, paid for by the sacrifice of Christ, but thirdly, I am promised acceptance before God. That eternal inheritance is awaiting me. And I've been promised by the God of the universe who Paul says in Titus chapter one cannot lie He cannot utter a lie, and yet he has promised acceptance to me and you in Christ. We have the full weight of the character of God behind that promise. So my security, my trust, my resting in my acceptance before God is based, according to this text, on at least these three things. And we could add to the list many more. Yeah. Bring in the kids. So here's where we're going, because the kids are coming in, and it's time for you to stand, because what you need is a song, all right? We're a bunch of sinners, and we need to sing, okay? Now, I couldn't think of a better song, uh, and, and I racked Daniel's brain as well, and the best song we could come up with that so beautifully describes what it is that we're here to, uh, trying to understand here this morning from Ephesians chapter 1. Is how deep the Father's love for us. Let me read the lyrics for just a moment, and I'll turn it over to Pastor Daniel, He us and song, and then we'll be dismissed. The author says this: How deep the Father's love for us? How vast, beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son to make His ret, or His wretch a wretch. Sorry, His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss! The Father turns His face away as wounds which Mar, the chosen one, brings many sons to glory. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice, right? We are at enmity with him, the Bible says. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice, call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything. It's not me, it's not you, it's not what we've done, our church membership, our, you know, et cetera. We don't whip out our resume to get into heaven. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Pastor Daniel, would you please come up here, my friend? Lead us in this song and then we'll be dismissed. Thanks, my man.
1: how deep the father's love for us how vast beyond all measure that he should give one bring many sons to glory behold the man upon the cross my sin upon his shoulders ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the stars. in that
0: Let's close in prayer. Gracious Father, we love you because you first loved us. We are overwhelmed at the reality that you have blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. That you have bestowed upon us graciously your election, adoption, and reception. That, Lord, we've been brought into your family through the crosswork of Christ, That you have loved us from before time began. And you will love us into eternity future. What a good God you are. We pray that you would help us to derive from these realities our identity and our security. That we would not doubt your love for us. But that you would all the more help us day by day, moment by moment, be convinced further of that reality that you love us, as Jesus said, to the uttermost. Bless us as we go our separate ways. Help us this week to live lives that reflect that we are the children of the King of Kings. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. God bless, you're dismissed.